This is The Doctor Is In, your bi-weekly podcast that discusses all things technical and not so technical. The Doctor Is In podcast is produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio, and sponsored by DX Engineering, helping you shrink the globe. See their website at www.dxengineering.com. And now, here's your host, QST editor Steve Ford, WB8IMY, and the doctor himself, Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Welcome to The Doctor Is In. I'm Steve Ford, WB8IMY. And I'm Joel Hallis, W1ZR. What did the bard say, Joel? Something about suffering the slings and arrows of... Oh, my God. <laughs> I think we're going to do that today. Yeah. <laughs> we're, going, we're going to suffer the, the slings and arrows. The, and by that, I mean, we're going to talk about getting antennas up in the air. Now, not necessarily big floppy yaggies on towers. I mean, we know that not everybody owns those. However, many people are like me. They've got wire dipole antennas, various wire antennas. And the big problem, and has been for me for many years, is getting the darn wires up and, and over the trees. Indeed. Well, before we start, I think it's worth mentioning that, that when you're hearing this for the first time, it should be June 6th, which is D-Day plus 75 years. And I think that's worth oh, a yeah. mention. Absolutely. Um, and I was thinking today, I guess um, I was in the Army on D-Day plus 17, I guess. <laughs> but about that time, The Longest Day came out as a movie, Cornelius Ryan's yes. book. Excellent. And movie. if you haven't seen that, I, I recommend it to give you an idea of what these people went through, and, and there's still some of them around, and uh, it's worth a thank you and a, and a remembrance. Absolutely. So, but anyway, yeah, I think wire antennas are probably the most popular numerically amateur radio antennas, just based on my own sense of what people have. And, uh, you know, frankly, while Yaggies and towers are more expensive and somewhat more visible. They're actually easier once you decide to do them and get somebody on, on board to, to install all this stuff. You just stand back and write checks. Oh, yeah. Whereas wire antennas is a whole different thing. And I remember growing up, I was a ham since I was 13, and I used to be able to climb trees. But there's only so far you can get in a tree before you start worrying about coming down faster than the antenna does. <laughs> and uh, But I'd look up at these upper branches and say, boy, I wish there were a way that I could get this wire up 60 feet because then I would really get out as opposed to having it up at 30 feet, which was the same level as the ground behind my house, actually. But nowadays, that's not an issue in the same way. There are lots of ways to do it. After I couldn't climb trees anymore, I used to, used to uh, get neighborhood kids to do it for me. <laughs> that's before the days of worrying about liability and stuff. Interestingly, I was just thinking about it. Uh, that was like 50, 50 years ago I was doing that. That, and two of the kids that helped me 50 years ago are still hams today. So I guess it well, got them interested enough, and we spent a lot of time in my basement together. Um, just, here, come throw this rock or yeah. shoot this arrow over the tree. But I don't know how many people are shooting arrows over trees, though, uh, well, that's, to that, put up antennas. That but. can be effective. I mean, there are a lot of ways. I mean, basically any kind of missile that you can get over a tree. A line gun used between ships would be handy, for example. Well, probably it's a little overkill. <laughs> Yes. And you do have to worry about downrange stuff. Oh, yeah. When you go over a tree, you come down on the other side of the tree. Now, oftentimes, the tree makes it hard to see what's over there. And if it happens to be your neighbor mowing the lawn, you can get in big trouble and spend a lot of time in court dealing with that afterwards if you don't check it out ahead of time and make sure that the neighbor's okay with you doing it. In, in my yard, many of my trees are along the edge of the property. So if I go over a tree from my house's side, it comes down in the yard of a neighbor. Probably true of many people. So keep that in mind as well. I think there are many ways that, that share the same basic idea, which is 
you get some kind of a projectile over a tree limb with nylon fishing line, light fishing line attached to it, and you pull it back with a, uh, a piece of twine attached to it to then pull up a progressively larger size rope and so forth until you get a halyard up there that can pull an antenna. That's why I do it, generally. Yeah. yeah. So you don't want to try to put the antenna on the fishing line because you'll end up doing it multiple times because the fishing line will break. But even Oh, though, yeah. Um, but you want to do it in stages. And I have a few rules about these things for any of these methods. Rule one is prepare all your lead sinkers by painting them with visibility orange or some color that will show up in your foliage. I guess in the fall, visibility orange may not be the best choice, but... Pick a color that'll work. And these are the sinkers that you're going to shoot over the limbs of the tree, maybe with a, uh, a slingshot. Exactly. I guess if you're using an arrow, the arrow will act in the same way. That's true. And if you're using a potato launcher, the potato will act in the same way. <laughs> but whatever it is, it, it's important to be able to see it because when it goes over a limb and comes down on the other side, the first four times for me never go in exactly the right place. So I have to do it again. Now, if you make the critical mistake of reeling it in, after you've made a mistake, what will invariably happen is that the line, the, the fishing line will make a pair of half hitches around some limb up 75 feet. Yes. And yes. then you'll never get it back. And you, what, you'll have to cut the line off down at the reel. And after a while, you'll have a kind of Christmas tree in the <laughs> of <laughs> lead sinkers hanging from your tree with um, fishing line on the other side, and you'll run out of both lead sinkers and fishing line. So the, the way to do it is to, if you make a mistake, and we, and we will, find the lead sinker, disconnect the fishing line, and then you can reel the fishing line in without any problem. Ah, And you put okay. the uh, sinker in your pocket and you hook it up again and you go through it again. But if you try to, if you make the mistake of trying to, I suppose everybody has to do it once. If you try to pull it back, so this looks easy, it will swing around and, and, um, and you'll never get it out. The weight, whatever it is, whether it's a sinker or whatever, will, will swing as you're trying to draw it back up. Absolutely. And of course, it'll just wrap itself right around a, uh, a tree limb and then you're, you're stuck. So Literally. You're, you're, you are, <laughs> so you're far better off just disconnecting the, the weight yeah. and then drawing the line back over the branch. And you can do that in a number of ways. I mean, you can just tie the, the line. But actually, when you go to the fishing store to buy the sinkers, they also have little clips that are sort of like uh, safety pins, but half the size, and they're yes. designed to fit through there. So you can actually just unclip it and clip it on at the other end for the next pass. So that's a good way to do it. Now, how do you get this sinker over the tree? There are a number of ways. There's a slingshot product that we've used called Easy Hang. We've is, reviewed that in QSD. Yeah. Yes. And, and um, it works reasonably well. I've gotten lines up 75, 100 feet with that. I have some pretty tall trees. The aim is a little tricky with that. But uh, I guess if you're good with a slingshot, if anybody's a master at that, that uh, makes it easier. But uh, it works reasonably well. The other thing that works extremely well, in my experience, is a fishing casting rod. I've never had any luck with that. I'm not contradicting you, but I, I just don't have the ability. I'm not a fly caster, you know. Yeah, I'm not either. And, and I guess uh, I was impressed with um, a friend came over and put up halyards for me, and he just uh, he was a good fisherman, and he just sent it up 100 feet, and, it, and once it went over the limb of the tree, he put his thumb on the line just a little bit, causing a little bit of drag, and instead of it keeping going through the neighbor's window, it came down straight next to the trunk, which is where you want it. It's hard to get it in there, usually. It was just a, a miracle work that he did, and he did like three or four halyards for me in half an hour, and uh, I was very impressed with that. While I'm not a fisherman, my son is, and he has a habit of leaving, turn 40, he still leaves stuff at our house. <laughs> so there was a fishing rod around until I busted it. But uh, I used that. The other guy, um, it took uh, one shot and he was over. With me, it was five shots, but still, it can go very handily, and it, it's sort of built-in line management with the reel on the, on the pole, and that worked quite well. 
well. So it's, you know, if you have access to a fishing lot, a uh, fishing pole, doesn't have to be a fancy one. You don't care if you're fooling the trout here. We just want to get it up over the tree. Yes. Uh, another thing that helps sometimes I found is um, you get a head start and go up on the roof. If a tree oh, yeah. gets near the roof, yeah. go on the roof and it gives you, depending on how many stories you have, 20, 30 feet of a head start, which is very handy. Just be careful you don't throw yourself off the roof when you when you do it. But the latest thing seems to be what started out as, as potato guns. Yes. Pneumatic tubes made out of PVC tubing that could fire a potato. Yes. Now, potatoes are not the best thing for this uh, service, but it turns out if you get the right size PVC, you can fire a tennis ball. And that's much more neighbor-friendly if it hits the lawn mowing guy next door. You may not uh, get on his Christmas list, but, but uh, <laughs> it's um, very effective. And it, you pump it up with a um, air compressor like you use for tires, and you push the trigger, and this thing goes sailing off uh, over a tree. Now, the one thing you have to watch out for with that particularly and other things as well is wind resistance. Even a lead sinker has significant uh, wind resistance. And if it's windy out, you'll find, even though you make a perfect shot, before it gets to the tree, it's 20 feet to the left or right because of the wind. <laughs> yes. And a yes. tennis ball is even more so because it's um, less dense and it has more surface area. So it'll go quite a ways. So probably best to have the wind at your back when you do that. It'll give you a little more range, possibly. but uh, it's uh, something to keep in mind. So all of those things work very well. And once you have the, uh, the line over, as I mentioned earlier, you need to, to use uh, success you need to use a succession of line sizes, probably starting with twine, working your way up to what the halyard is going to be. Now, I find for the halyard, I like uh, double braid, yacht braid, or some um, antenna manufacturers. The Wireman, for one, sells this stuff, which has an outer weather-resistant coating and an inner strength coating. And together, they make a very effective, non-stretching halyard. That's what I use. In fact, mine is uh, the outer is black Dacron. UV resistance? That's what resistant, I should say. That's what I've been using as well. And the ni a nice thing about that is, you know, a lot of rope and twine is, is white, which is uh, really stands out against your tree trunk. Black disappears. Yes. Which is handy. If you don't want people saying, what the heck is that rope doing going up your tree? Yeah. Are you climbing that? <laughs> but that's what I use. And the other thing is you need to decide how you're going to make this thing work. So one way is just pull it over the limb, which I often do. The problem with that is about half the time the rope becomes part of the tree. The tree yes. grows around the rope and there's no hope in moving it anymore unless you uh, remove the tree or remove the tree limb. So that happens about half the time. The other half the time the tree moving back and forth chafes the rope and it breaks. But it's a much better arrangement to, um, and this is uh, shown in the ARL antenna book, for example, to haul up a pulley of the type used for clothesline and use that to pull the antenna up. Now that way, any chafing is not, it's not going to happen because the uh, halyard is over a pulley, which has the ability to move back and forth as the tree moves. And in addition, the tree can't grow into it. In fact, if the tree grows around that rope that's holding the pulley up, that's not a bad thing either. I had a, uh, happened to get it while I was doing this, I happened to get a note from Jeff, WB4WXD, who suggests that rather use, than using pulleys, use uh, carabiners, the little uh, snap closing oh, yeah, things yeah. that mountain climbers use to hang on to the pegs they drive into the, the rock. And they, they are not terribly expensive and uh, they don't jam. There's really no reason not to use them. I use some of them on the boat for jib halyards um, that aren't used very often. 
and it works very well. In fact, I was thinking about this. I uh, tried to help a friend hoist a Yagi up on top of a structure that he had, and the high-strength stainless steel line that he was using to do this with, which was rated for hundreds of pounds, kept breaking. We said, what is going on here? And finally, he ran out of line and gave up. And days later, I said, oh, I know what happened. The pulley froze up. The, the bearings mm. in the pulley stopped working. It wasn't turning. So the pulley was sitting there stationary, and if you pull against it with a weight on each side, you know, you pulling on one side, the Yagi pulling on the other, instead of moving, it breaks. <laughs> yes. So, you know, pulleys are not all that great a uh, solution, especially the kind that are used for clotheslines, which are not the same quality as some of the, same marine pulleys that we may be used to. Something else we're starting to see that uh, we should mention is some amateurs are using drones now, and they're attaching their lines to the drones. I mean, thin lines, like oh, fishing yeah. lines. And they're flying their drones up over the target limb or over the target tree, and then coming down the other side and then landing on the, or hovering, landing or hovering on the grass on the other side and, and doing it that way. Oh, that's perfect. I, yeah, I've thought about it. I've imagined that when I've seen I didn't think of it for this preparation for today, but, but I have thought about that as I looked at drones and say, boy, that would be a way to get a halyard over a tree. Yeah. Because it, it takes the windage problem away. I guess the, if it's windy enough, the drone may have trouble staying That's true. in yes. place, but at least you, you can see it having a problem and you do something about it. But that sounds like a great idea. We have an article coming up in the August issue of QST, uh, just a short article about a fellow who uh, used his drone to uh, inspect his antenna. Once mm -hmm. it was up, it has a high-definition camera on it and he just goes up and you know after winter and takes a look at the center insulator and all that make sure everything's fine and uh, that's handy too that's a little off topic but still yeah, yeah. that is a great idea too i've seen i've seen um, clips of people's antennas that they've done that and mm -hmm. uh, it's rather dramatic and drones are becoming much less expensive than they used to be for a good one that is stable and yeah. relatively easy to fly and this could be an excuse for buying one that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you needed one. Well, Joe, let's uh, hear from DX Engineering, okay. and we will be back. Every ham radio operator knows speed matters. Whether it's jumping in your truck during an emergency or staying up all night for lightning-quick contesting, seconds count. And there's nothing more painful than being off the air waiting for equipment to arrive. At DX Engineering, we know a thing or two about speed. You can count on us to provide the fastest shipping in the ham universe. How fast? You get same-day shipping on most orders placed by 10 p.m. Eastern Time. That's that fast. So that new rig, antenna, cable assembly, or replacement part you need will make it to your shack in plenty of time to work a remote DXCC entity or dominate the competition in the next contest. And the best part is DX Engineering offers free shipping for most orders over $99. Radio waves travel at the speed of light. Lucky for you, so does DX Engineering. Visit dxengineering.com. That's dxengineering.com. And we're back. And Jeff, WB9DAN, is asking, will a 30 megahertz cutoff low-pass filter work in reverse, so to speak, if I connected it to a receiver? I know the primary purpose of a low-pass filter is to attenuate transmitter harmonics above 30 megahertz, but can it also attenuate frequencies above 30 megahertz from finding their way into the receiver? What say? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it, it doesn't know which direction the signals are going or what where the signals are coming from. It, it doesn't? I don't think so. <laughs> no filter that I've had. And I have a few if somebody wants to make me an offer. But a low-pass filter can be used to work in either direction. Now, one caution about low-pass filters is most of them were uh, produced in the day, in the 50s, let's say, when 
transmitters went up to 30 megahertz, as you point out. But be aware that since your transceiver works up to 6 meters probably, or most modern transmitter transceivers do, it will also attenuate 6 meters. So if you want to use yes. 6 meters, you have to think about how you're going to wire that up. Maybe with a separate antenna, it would work okay. But in most cases, modern HF gear is pretty good at eliminating responses to VHF signals and, and other out-of-band signals. But there may be an exception uh, if you live right next to a uh, TV or FM, commercial FM transmitter that's putting out 50,000 watts. It may cause some desensitivity of your receiver. If that's the case, a uh, filter like this may be just what you need. And if you go to any flea market, I don't know if anybody sells these anymore, but if you go to any flea market, you'll find piles of them around. I or think come, I've seen a few for sale, but no, you're right. Not many. I've, I've um, just pushing around a pile of them in my basement the other day. So <laughs> make, me, make me an offer. <laughs> Time anyway, to go to eBay. Yes. Yeah, that's another good place. Now, there were some low-pass filters back in the day that had a cutoff higher than 30 megahertz designed to work on 6 meters. They typically would cut off at 52 megahertz, which would allow 6-meter signals in the uh, what's now the CW sideband portion primarily to pass. And they would still attenuate signals that would be in channel 2, which started at 54. Now, of course, channel 2 I don't think is used as a TV channel very many places anymore. I don't know. Probably not, no. Yeah, they've, they've moved a lot of things out. And, and that brings up the point that these filters were designed in the days of AM transmitters that generally had Class C amplifiers as their final modulated stage. And the Class C amplifier is inherently non-linear and thus generates many harmonics. Yes. While the output stage of the transmitter tended to reduce them, it would not meet uh, current purity standards. Hardly, no. This combined with the often weak over-the-air TV reception of the 50s and 60s and poorly designed TV sets resulted in lots of TV interference. And this was a big problem, perhaps the biggest problem for amateurs in those periods. I was there then. Oh, it was huge. If you go back and read QSTs from that era, you find a lot of discussion about it. Absolutely. But today, it's a different story. Transceivers designed for SSB use linear amplifiers. Even if they're operating CW, they use linear amplifiers. And on AM, the AM is generated at low levels, and then the amplification is done with linear amplifiers. But even more important is that most TV reception, in my area at least, is over cable TV. And the that isn't comes over digital TV from broadcast stations, neither of which are as susceptible to interference as the old analog systems were that we used back in the 50s and 60s for television. So it's really unusual, but not unprecedented to have TV interference problems. And most of the time, in my experience, it isn't coming in from the antenna, although it can be not coming in directly from into the RF stage of the uh, TV. It's coming in over the power lines or some other way that it gets into the TV. So there is, there can be problems, but low-pass filters are generally not the solution this time period. No, and because of all the uh, evolution of modern electronics, you don't find low-pass filters no, very often. You, know. you don't. Well, thank you, Joel. If you have a question for the doctor, email us at doctor at ARRL.org. The Doctor is in podcast is sponsored by DX Engineering at www.dxengineering.com. Background music provided by Purple Planet at www.purple-planet.com. This podcast is copyright ARRL. All rights are reserved. Until next time, I'm QST Managing Editor Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY, 73, and thanks for listening.